We're continuing our series this morning. The series is entitled Questions. Last week we look at, looked at science versus faith. And today we're going to keep on stepping through this. And we're going to ask the question, does God exist? Before we do so, let's bow for prayer. Gracious God, by your mercy, meet with us today. Father, where my words are of no consequence, except they are ordered by you. And so I pray that by your word, uh, hearts would understand. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we do understand. And so I pray that you would work and do that which I cannot do by the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. And so God, would you work in and amongst us. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In 1882, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? As he writes in his piece, The Madman, this is the one who calls and, and runs into the marketplace, the square, and cries this out. We have killed God. In Twilight of the Gods, Nietzsche writes also, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls right, the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith of God in God, one breaks the whole. Nietzsche thought this would only be a good thing for, those, for some people saying, at hearing the news that God, the old God is dead, we are philosophers and free spirits. We feel the illuminated uh, by the new dawn. If Nietzsche was the dawn of the new atheism in the 20th century, the sun of it shone brightly. But those who believed God was dead or really never existed were not content to leave it there. The French philosopher Etienne Bourne gave this definition of atheism. Atheism is deliberate, definite, dogmatic denial of the existence of God. It is not satisfied with the appropriate truth or relative truth, but claims to see the ins and outs of the game quite clearly being the absolute denial of the absolute. In the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the atheist uh, is a person, um, I'll skip ahead, uh, who maintains that there is no God, and that's the sentence, God exists, express a false proposition. A person who rejects God. Robbie Zacharias, atheism is not merely a passive unbelief in God, but an assertive denial of the major claims of all varieties of theism. Atheism contradicts belief in God with a positive affirmation of matter as the ultimate reality. And so the atheist or anti-theist builds his or her world view or life around the belief that there is no God. It is this presupposition by which he or she orders their lives. But is it truly rational to be an anti-theist? Is there evidence to the contrary? 
This morning I'd like to begin, and actually not open the scripture until at the very end to bring it to bear, but to walk through philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Obviously, philosophy is the love of wisdom, and it's the, the sturdy, the undefining out of understanding. And so as we walk through this, I'm going to give you two main things, kind of boil them down, two main things of philosophies that will give us the understanding of the evidence that God does exist. And today my goal is to follow the evidence. And so for you, maybe you're here, as I said last week, a skeptic. Maybe it's like, I'm not quite sure. I want to be seen. I want to, I want to show, be shown. I want to see it for myself. Or maybe you're here as a believer, having lost sight of what God has given to you. So follow the evidence this morning. And if you want to discuss it further, uh, please seek me out this next week. I love, I love coffee. I love talking while I drink coffee. Uh, I promise to swallow first. But we'll talk about it. We'll see, uh, see where, where the, the evidence leads us. Now understand, I, I, this is not all of me. I stand on the shoulders of great professors in seminary, of great writers. And so as you, if you see, hear and see this, this is studying over many great uh, works of, of knowledge. So the question is, is there evidence for the existence of God? Is there objective evidence? Is there evidence out there, uh, philosophical evidence for the existence of God? Now, before we come to the Bible, we'll get there. Is there evidence for God? Well, I'm going to take you two areas, as I said. And it's like Immanuel Kant says, the moral law within and the starry host above will be our understanding. So where to begin? Well, let's begin with the moral law within. Plato said, there are two things that lead men to believe in God. The argument from the existence of the soul and the argument from the order of the motion of the stars. And those two will be our evidences. The, the issue, the evidence of morality and the evidence of the universe. So basically to boil it down, it's anthropology people what's in us and cosmology, the universe, how it is that it is constructed and how it is that God has revealed himself. Number one, the evidence of morality. See, the anti-theist has a huge problem solving this question of morality. You might have been taught or told this, that there is no such thing as God because there is evil in the world. If there was a God, there would not be evil in the world. Now, don't just gloss over that, because there is evil in the world, isn't there? Okay, the, the evidence of which, just in the 20th century, and the rise of enlightenment, and the rise of the thoughts, the philosophical arguments that God is dead, the 20th century brought us the most carnage than the prior centuries that we have in, in human record. You think about it. You think of Hitler, of Stalin, of Lenin, of Mao of Paul Pot continues on the countless millions that have been murdered and butchered evil on display but where do we get this concept of evil how is it that there is evil because there is no god so if we assume there's such a thing as evil aren't we assuming that there's such a thing as good we have an evil well there must be good if we assume there is something such a thing as good Aren't we assuming that there is a moral law? 
There is something written, maybe not on paper, but something written within us that says there is a moral law of what is good and what is evil. And if we assume there is a moral law, must we also assume there is a moral law giver? Who was it that told you that something was right or wrong? Who was it that said, you can't do this? C.S. Lewis, uh, an Oxford professor, you know him from his writings, was a skeptic, an atheist, most of his life. And as he writes, after he's come to Christ, he writes in his book, Mere Christianity, he begins by pointing out why he began to believe in God in the first place. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling, he says. They say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat, I was there first. Leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Why should you, why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like this every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people. Children as well as grown-ups. And now that's what interests me about all of these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you'd like to call it about which they really agreed. He said there's some sort of innate sense of right or wrong, of morality. And so he begins to explore why is that? What is that? How does people know? The next time someone cuts you off in traffic, why are you outraged? Uh, you, you may know from going up from Lar- on Haywood Road, from Lawrence Road up to Pelham Road, you start there from Faith Free, and there's several churches you go up. And in the mornings, and I, usually I am at home early in the morning, but I had to go out one day this week, and it was backed up, probably about 50 cars. I chose the wrong time, lack of knowledge. Uh, I chose 50 cars. And so I'm sitting here. I want to turn left. There is, I know, a turn lane up there. And there's a median. And I'm sitting here with my blinker on patiently, the first other 50 cars in front of me. And somebody goes right by his, in the median, up there, turn left. I'm like, and I was incensed. Why? I'm waiting here patiently. And he's going on up there. And about 20 cars later, I'm up closer, and I put my blinker on, and I get in that median, and I go off. And it was right for me then, because it was only 20 cars, when it was bad for him, when it was only well, it was 50 cars. Where do we get that sense that of, of right or wrong or justice, or I want, to be, I want to be treated fairly? Why is that? And as I, kept to the, as I pulled up to the lane, and I, I recognized the... The hypocrisy that I felt. I felt justified when it was only 15 or 20 cars. Where did it come from? Where is that innate sense? Richard Dawkins has now said that we have to deny the reality of evil. Because of this problem, let's just deny the reality of evil. There is no such thing as evil. All right? Alex Rosenberg is brutally honest about the implications of his atheism here, too. He declares that there is no such thing as morally right or wrong. That our, cult, that our, our understanding of right or wrong or, or morals is based on our culture, what we have accepted to be in our culture. But let's say that if you're an atheist, you and I go to another country 
we'll go to the um, proverbial jungle, and we're taking along your sister. So we're coming along, and we come across, across a tribe that they, it is their culture to kill and eat people. And so they grab your sister, they tie her up, they begin the pot to boil her and to eat her. What are you going to say? Well, I mean, there really is no such thing as right or wrong. It's just, if you carry out the logical end of this, is that all I can say, or all you can say if you're an atheist, is I just am not pleased with that. Because it's in their culture. There's not really right or wrong. There is no moral lawgiver if God is dead. And so, I really can't say anything. So I wonder how far are you willing to take this idea? The problem is, if you're an anti-theist, your worldview does not allow you to say decisively that something is right or something is wrong. Because there is no objective standard of morality. The best you can say is, I don't like it. Individual human life is meaningless and without, ultimate, and without an ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. Nihilism is, nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. He's saying here, and this is um, quoting from the Atheist Guide to Reality. This is philosophynow.org. You can see the the link on, online there. He's saying here that now, because of this, we've come to the point that really life is meaningless. There is no ultimate moral authority. I find it interesting in the, in the 60s and 70s, free love, don't tell me how to live my life and my morals while I protest an unjust war. That's what happens the work can be unjust, and also it can be wrong to live outside of marriage in such a way of physical relationships. It's interesting as you look at this. William Lane, uh, in his book, Reasonable Faith, uh, quotes Bertram Russell. Lane writes, he says, uh, for though he was a, an atheist, he was an outspoken social critic, denouncing war and restrictions on sexual freedom. Russell admitted that he could not live as though ethical values were simply a matter of his own personal taste, and that he therefore found his own views incredible. I do not know the solution, he confessed. The first evidence is one of morality. Where do we get morality, if not from a god? A moral lawgiver. Without God, there is no moral law. There is no right or wrong. The end of a philosophy that says there is no God is meaningless life, nihilism. We might as well not even live. See, the very fact that you think that racism, sexism, unjust treatment of the poor and disabled come from somewhere that is a wrong is not natural, according to Russell. The very fact that you understand that is the imprint of God upon your soul, even if you choose not to believe him, the imprint of God that gives you a sense, however clouded, that there is right or wrong. It points to a moral lawgiver. The second evidence is that of the universe. 
Second evidence is that of the universe. We look around and wonder at our galaxy. Many of you found yourself outdoors on August 21st. In fact, there was an article in the, the uh, Greenville online about how many millions of dollars came into Greenville because of, do you remember where you were on the 21st? The eclipse. We all went outside, looked through funny glasses, and we saw stuff in the sky. We saw the sun disappear and came back after two and a half minutes or so. I really wasn't all excited about it. I only went for the, to the FGP, Vicky's Works, uh, party because they had free food um, and to be with people. Uh, but I found myself strangely fascinated to watch this happen. It was actually more, uh, okay, exciting is not the word. Uh, but it was more fascinating than I thought it would be. The marvel of the universe. We first start with a concept of contingency. This idea that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent on something outside of itself. Everything has a cause. Everything is contingent on something. So since the universe began to exist, there was something non-contingent that caused the universe to exist. It's interesting, but uh, for years, the atheist answer to the universe was that the universe was non-contingent. That the universe itself was eternal. But Mr. Hubble looked up into the sky in 1929... And to begin to see the galaxies of the universe and notice that they were expanding. They were rapidly moving away from each other. And in fact, space itself was getting bigger. And so he extrapolated, and as other scientists came around him, that at one point it was much smaller and it came, and they began to call this the Big Bang. Okay? It was all of a sudden matter exploded was the, the, the theory, the hypothesis, and everything began to go and expand and expand, and it began to think to sound awful lot like a, like a Genesis equation. In fact, it, the, the, it was first rejected by scientists, this idea of a Big Bang, because of that very reason. Uh, as one scientist said, it seemed to give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of a beginning of the world, and it also seemed to call for an act of supernatural creation. And so let's bring mathematics into this and consider the probability of this happening. I want to go too deeply into this, but the scholars tell us that the chance of our universe coming into existence is one chance in 10 to 138th power. That's a lot of zeros. To put this in context, it's considered that 10 to the 17th power is our best estimate of the number of seconds in the entire history of the universe. This is from, from science. Uh, you may think it's younger. And 10 to the 70th is the number of atoms in the entire universe. So the probability of the universe coming into existence in a way that is fine-tuned for human life is impossible. The universe had a beginning. The astrophysicists say that there are around 122 variables that would have to have had to line up in precise values for the universe to come into existence. And if any of those were off by even one part in a million millionth, the matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, no stars, no planets, no people. That's you and me. Astronomer Fred Hoyle, uh, Hoyle uh, concludes, a common sense interpretation of the fact suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking of about in nature. The evidence we come to conclusion that there is 
It was a beginning, an uncaused cause. You look at the universe, but you also look at the order in it. And I love to, to think of this. And you've all heard probably the, the idea of order and design, the watchmaker. Uh, the watchmaker argument is, is, uh, is old, yet holds appeal. The very complexity of the watch. The very complexity of the watch. Clues us in that there was a watchmaker. There was a designer. Someone brought this together. Each thing of beauty or order is designed in our universe. It cries out for a designer. I find it interesting that in grasping for answers that exclude God, atheists often come to answers that mimic God. Richard Dawkins believes that humans were created through mud. The outspoken 75-year-old wrote, Mud in the form of clay may have learned to replicate, and even eventually the process led to creation of the famous DNA double helix in life itself. Hey, he writes in the book called The Blind Watchmaker, oddly enough, uh, that is based on a scientific proposal by a Scottish chemist, Graham Cairns-Smith. The Cairns-Smith thought the DNA proteins, the essential molecules of life, are far too complex to have arrived fully formed. He knew that following evolutionary principles of, of a much simpler start was needed, and he discovered it in clay. Discovered in clay, he thought, the essential things for life to reproduce itself. I could go more into design and biology, more into astronomy, the laws of physics. Where did they come from? How were they already there before the universe? They didn't just begin at that in single instance. To the point that I mentioned last week, it takes a great deal of faith to believe that nobody times nothing brought into being everything. It takes a lot of faith. But what if I don't want to believe in God? What are my options? What are my options if I don't want, you say, Stacey, I don't, I really, I'm not going to go there. I choose not to go there. I don't care about the evidence. I, I choose not to go there. What are your options? What are your options? Well, um, the first option is, I think, um, I like the best because it's the lucky us option. The lucky us option. It says, yes, the odds are unimaginable, but uh, maybe we are just lucky. It's kind of like going to the casino and every time you pull the one-armed bandit, you get a million dollars. Boom. I don't have to third time. You know, the guys in the black suits in the casino, they're going to come and usher you away. Because nobody is that lucky. But if that's what you choose, that is the lucky, the only option that's open to you. If you're looking for a rational explanation, this probably isn't it. Or you could take the multiverse option. The multiverse or the meta-universe is a hypothetical set of possible universes. It's the idea that it's almost like bubbles, soap bubbles, and they're all there, and they borrow, and as they keep growing and growing, um, they learn from each other, and to the one that we have here is the one that's the result of it. Um, and Dawkins suggests this. He calls it the bubbles of foam in a multiverse. And this option takes into account that it isn't ra- rational for all of this random chance. So it's not random chance, so it must be the multiverse option. However, from science and what we've learned from the universe, we're pretty sure there never could be that huge of series of Big Bangs all at once and not interact with each other harmfully. In fact, even Dawkins now recognizes the fact, as it turns out, the serial version of the multiverse must now be judged less likely than it once was. It now looks as if, though, 
as though our own universe is destined to expand forever. What I would submit to you is that it is more rational to believe that God exists and, and that he is created. It is more rational from the philosophical arguments, from the, the argument of morality and of the universe, it's more rational to believe that God exists. The question is, why do we as humans resist in believing? Why is it? If we logically consider this, that denying God is philosophically irrational, So why do we always want to resist this understanding of God as humans? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. A God in love creates a universe and sets in that universe humans. He gives the humans a capacity to love. That's relationship. He writes upon them a moral law and gives them the capacity to determine right from wrong and the freedom of will to choose it. That's morality. These humans rebelled against him and they continue to rebel in wickedness. The wickedness was great, so he sends a flood to wipe the slate clean to begin again with a few humans. And he makes a covenant with Noah. And he begins there to make another, from the, Uh, From Adam, a a first covenant, to to Noah here, a second covenant. And he says, I will never destroy again the world by by water. Then he calls Abram out of his homeland and says, I will make a covenant with you. If you go, I will make of you a great nation. So Abraham in faith follows God. But as we humans are wont to do, there's a continued slide towards self-will the violation of God's moral law. God makes a covenant with Moses on the mount, and there he spells out a moral law of what to do, what the people needed to do to receive that moral law. And when they violated that moral law, what they needed to do to have forgiveness from God in that moral law. And he makes a covenant with David that foreshadows the coming son of David, the one who would be the king, the prophet and priest a one greater than David would come. And David's covenant foreshadows this one. And then the ultimate expression of love, he makes a new covenant as he reveals himself self in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Very God himself, Jesus came to earth, he lived, he suffered, he died, and rose again to bring the new covenant in himself. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but through, through the Father, but through me. And here a covenant that's provided forgiveness of sin for all people is received. It's God's grace to you, and we receive it through faith in Christ. This is the story of the Bible. The story of God who continues to pursue humans. He he created them to be in relationship with Him and He continues, even when we rebel, to pursue us and to reach out to us and provide the way that we might be reconciled, brought to Him. And this is the God of the universe who does exist, who has spelled and written out a moral law within us, who has provided for us 
the expression of himself, not only through the universe, but through Jesus Christ, the very God himself. It's a story of love. It's a story in contrast to nihilism, the story of purpose and of meaning. This is the story of Jesus Christ, and this is the story that has been brought to you and to me. God exists. And he beckons to you. Come unto me all, ye who are heavy laden and weary. I will give you rest. God exists. Will you receive him? Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, O God, for providing for us the story of love, of purpose, of meaning and hope, the story that is you. Thank you that we have, by your grace, you have brought us to yourself. We who know you, who sit here today, and we marvel that you would love us. And Lord, if there, there are those here who do not know or trust, have not come into that relationship with you, and so God, I pray that you would open their eyes to see and to understand. May they see that you love them. That you are a personal God and your desire to be in relationship with them through Jesus. And so would you, by your grace and mercy, would you do a work today in hearts. For it's in Christ and I pray. Amen. Head bow.